So we're continuing this morning in this series called Beginnings. You guys know if you've been here the last three weeks that we've been in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Pastor Brian has brought three wonderful messages related to creation and uh, evolution and different things. And last week talked about work and rest. And so if you haven't heard those messages, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those because they're very timely. I think this whole series is really very timely for where we are as a culture. Uh, we live in a culture that continues to divorce itself from the idea of absolute truth. And that's not a new thing, but as things move forward, we see the escalation of that. So when people divorce themselves from absolute truth, and absolute truth is something that's true for all people in all places at all times. The sun is hot would be an example of an absolute truth. That's always true, always. You don't always see the sun, but the sun is always hot. And so this morning when we come back to Genesis, we we're going to this series to, to help us just kind of reestablish and reaffirm our commitment to biblical revelation as absolute truth. So many things that we see in our culture sadden us. They, it burdens us to see what's going on around us because the logical conclusions of, of divorcing yourself from absolute truth is relativism, which means anybody can do whatever they want, anytime they want, to whoever they want, wherever they want, however they want. There's consequences to that, but that's the way a lot of the world lives now. If you were to go out and ask the average person on the street, do you believe in absolute truth? They'd probably say, no, nah, not really, because that's where we are as a culture. So it's very important that we go back and, and see what the Word of God has to say about these very, very important basic truths uh, that, that start from the very beginning of time. So this morning, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Brian's preached up through uh, 2 verse 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 4 today here in just a minute. And uh, let me just say to you, that last week I got to be over on our Marshall campus, and I realized that uh, some of you have never been to our Marshall campus. They meet every Sunday at 9, 30, and 11, just like we do, and uh, they don't have an 8 o'clock service. But uh, I would encourage you some Sunday, if you're not serving here on our campus, to just go over and worship with them. They're, we're one church, and so it's great to see them. I hadn't actually been on the Marshall campus in 10 months. So I know those people. I used to preach over there quite a bit. And I haven't seen many of them in 10 months, so it's great to get kind of reacquainted with them. I taught the membership class over there last Sunday, four people uh, committed to the expectations of membership. We celebrate that. I'll be teaching that here in three weeks on February 21st on a Sunday morning. So if that's your next step, I would encourage you to consider that and pray about that. It doesn't mean you're going to join just because you come to the course, but it's very helpful for you to understand some things about our church, who we are, what we offer, what we expect. And so I would encourage you just to take that next step if that is indeed your next step. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read this passage aloud, Genesis 2, verses 4 through 9, and verses 16 and 17. And this is what it says. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. And the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Thank you. You can be seated this morning. 
So anytime that we open our Bibles, anytime that you go to the Bible to read your Bible, I hope you ask yourself a very basic question. And that is this, who is God? What is God like? I've talked to you guys about this before we did the Names of God series, but it's so important. So many times when we, when we read our Bibles, we bring these preconceived notions about who God is into that. And oftentimes they're not biblical. They're not true. They're idolatrous. So we are free to think of God as he has revealed himself. So that's interesting to me because from chapter 1 all the way through Genesis 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, where Bryant stopped last week, every time the word is God is used in your English Bible, it's the name Elohim by itself. And you guys will remember from the Names of God series that there's two basic names for God, Elohim and Yahweh. And the name Elohim means powerful, supreme, and sovereign. So think of God. God says, you are free to think of me as powerful, supreme, no one's above me, and sovereign, which means I'm in control of everything. That's the way I've revealed myself. And so in Genesis chapter 1, through the whole creation story and the different days of creation, you see God in power. You see him supreme. There's no one above him. He doesn't have to get anybody's permission to create the world. He did it by himself, all by himself, out of nothing. And he's sovereign. He's over it all. And so that's the way God reveals himself. Every time, 36 different times it's mentioned in Genesis 1 through verse uh, 3 of chapter 2, the name Yahweh. And then something changes in the verse that I started with today, verse 4. Because if you go back and look at an interlinear between the Hebrew and the English and you see the, what the word says, now you see no longer is it just God. Your English translation says the Lord God. Every time now, all the way through the end of chapter 3, you're going to see the Lord God. Now the Lord God is the combination of those two names. Yahweh, which means self-existent, personal, and present and powerful, supreme, and sovereign. It's the combination of the two names, Yahweh and Elohim. And that's important because God is saying something to us about who he is. Now, obviously, the word Lord maybe doesn't communicate to you self-existent, personal, and present, but that's what, that's what the original name Yahweh means. And so it's important because what God's saying to us is, I want you to think of me as I am. I want you to think of me correctly. If we do anything else, it's idolatry. And we come out with the wrong conclusion. And so it's very important because God is revealing himself through these two chapters. So chapter 1 is about creation. And here we've read about creation again. But in chapter 2, it's a little more detailed. And so I want us to think about this and what it looks like. And today I hope you can make just kind of two overarching discoveries. They're pretty simple. The first one is this, is the Lord God created. You say, well, yeah, okay, we've been in Genesis 1 for three weeks. I know he created. So what did he create? What was the purpose behind it? Why did he do it? That's what we're going to look at this morning in some kind of detail so you can understand that better. So I just want to show you some things right from Scripture that God did in his creativity, that Yahweh Elohim did in his creative power. The first thing verse 7 says is he produced life, human life, which is no small thing because no one has been able to replicate that since. Human life is a miracle, right? I mean, no one can replicate human life. We create robots, we do our best, but they, they pale in comparison to humanity and to the human life that God breathed into. So God formed the man out of dust, and then he breathed his breath into his nostrils, he said. And so humans, people, are the highest form of his creation. And, and he values us in an incredible way because he breathed life into us. So what you see when you see people who divorce themselves from God and embrace atheism is often what you see is uh, diminishing of the value of human life. 
Why? Because they aren't the ones who breathe their life into humanity. God did. So God alone sets the value of who we are and what our value really is. And so in the New Testament, what you see is you see that we're commanded to love each other. The verse that Greg read a second ago from second or from uh, yeah, first John three, where he talked about laying down our lives. As the Lord laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for each other. Why? Because every human life that's ever lived, that ever will live, regardless of what they look like, where they act like, any of the rest, every human life has supreme value to God. And every time we're commanded in the New Testament to love each other, we're commanded, the, Lord, the word agape there literally means to place supreme value on someone else. And so if you place supreme value on someone else, you will do exactly what 1 Corinthians 13, first six verses talk about. You will be kind. You will be patient. You won't be mean to them. Because when you place supreme value on them, that tells you how to treat someone. The reality is, when we divorce ourselves from absolute truth, humanity, the value of human life goes down. So we live with this tragedy in our country of abortion, where for years and years we have destroyed human life for convenience and comfort. It's not, it's not the time for me to have a child, so it's my body, I can do whatever I want with it. No, it's a human life. God made life and he values it. And what we see in our culture is the continuing diminishing of valuing of human life. So God produced life. The second thing you see here is he planted a garden. The Bible says it was east in Eden. We don't know exactly where that was, but the Bible uses the word paradise to describe Eden, to describe this garden. And the word can be translated in enclosed park. So think of it as a, as a beautiful place of perfection that God intended human existence to be lived out in. So if you want to think about what the ideal of human existence is, God tells us he put he put a garden in place for us to live in. That was his ideal, is that we would live in this place of perfection where there's all these wonderful things and there's no sin and there's no death and there's no heartache and there's no worry and there's no anxiety and there's no threat of anything. A place of perfection. So he plants this garden very intentionally. Yahweh does this because he's personal and because he's present. And then it says that he placed man in the garden. In other words, the garden was created for man to live in, for you and I to live in. And that's interesting because we see in Genesis 3.8 what activity took place between God and Adam and Eve in the garden. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And so it's a picture. Now, obviously, they've sinned at this point, And Brian's going to get to this in a couple of weeks in another sermon. But at this point, they're hiding themselves from God. But this suggests that this was a common activity, that God came into the garden and interacted with them, loved them, shared with them, that they had a close personal relationship. That's the picture of the garden. That's why he placed man there so he could have this unhindered relationship with man. That's what God's after in every one of our lives. That's what the garden was about. It was a place of unbroken fellowship with God. That's what he wanted for every single human being from the very, very beginning. Now, I hope that you guys have taken serious this idea of fasting over the last seven days. And if you haven't, it's okay, you can start today. And I'm going to tell you what I fasted from, what I've been fasting from, and not because there's any pride involved in this, just because I'm a leader here. I want you to know that I'm doing this with you. And so as I thought about what to fast from, I've fasted from different things in the past, and I thought about the Lord just kind of laid this on my heart to uh, fast from turning on my radio in my vehicle for 14 days. You say, well, how much time do you spend in your vehicle? I spend a lot of time in my vehicle <laughs> because 
My wife can't drive yet, so at my house, I'm the one that runs all the errands and goes places and gets this and gets that and goes back when I forgot what I was supposed to get and goes back again because I forgot. So I find it in the evening, I'm in my car a lot. And what I normally do is just flip on the radio and I listen to talk radio or sports talk or music, but there's always something on the radio. And so it was like the Lord said, just turn that off for 14 days. So last Monday when I started, I think 15 times I tried to turn the radio on. I went, oh, can't turn the radio on. Okay. And what it's created in the last seven days is a space. Silence. I heard my vehicle making noises I hadn't heard before. Got to get that checked out. But really it created space because every time I thought about turning it on, because that's my habit, that's what I always do, it's like the Lord said, wait a minute, not now. Talk to me. Just let's fellowship together while you're driving. I've been a nicer driver the last seven days too, by the way. (laughs) I haven't been as in a hurry. The reality is that space is what God wants to fill up in each of our lives. That's what the point of the fast is all about, is to pray for our pastor search committee, to pray for our new pastor, pray for our church, just to pray about my life, just to, just to have more fellowship with God. I have a quiet time every day, but it's great throughout the day as I'm in my vehicle and I'm reminded, mm, don't do that, don't turn that on right now, just pray to me, just a reminder, like the Holy Spirit reminds me every day, just pray. And it's been a good thing. And it, it harkens back to this picture of the garden experience with Adam and God, because that's why God created the garden. That's why he placed the man there, for there to be this unbroken sense of fellowship. That hasn't changed. God still wants that for every one of us. In fact, you know the story of Mary and Martha in the New Testament. Jesus went to Bethany to spend time with them. And Martha, the sister, she was getting everything all ready. And Jesus comes in and Mary just goes and sits down at his feet. She doesn't help her sister get the house ready. She doesn't help get the food ready. Martha's really agitated by that. She goes to Jesus and says, look, you know, why don't you bother? She's not helping me. And Jesus says this to her in 41 and 42 of Luke 10. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. In other words, Mary got it. She saw an opportunity to be with me. She didn't didn't want to miss that. She wanted to take advantage of that. That's the picture of the garden. That's what each of us can have through Jesus Christ now is that sense of oneness and unity and fellowship with God. That's what he wants for each one of us. So he placed man in the garden. So let me ask you a question. When's the last time you had a garden experience with God? When's the last time you just walked with God? Just spent some extended time with God. It's the best thing you can do for your soul. And I encourage you to do that. Set aside some time. Go somewhere safe. And just give God a couple of hours. Just take your Bible and just listen. Turn everything off and just go be with God. That's what you were made for. That's what the garden is all about. And so what did he provide in the garden? Well, several things. First, he says in verse 9, he provided pleasing food. It said all food that was pleasing in appearance and good to eat. So he actually is not against pleasure. God is not anti-pleasure. God made pleasure. But we're not supposed to be lovers of pleasure, Paul said. So in the last days, men will be lovers of pleasure. He said, we're not supposed to be lovers of pleasure. It's not supposed to replace God in our lives. But he's not against pleasure. God made pleasure. (laughs) He, He created great things, pleasing things for Adam. He's a good God. That's what he's communicating here. Psalm 84, 11 says, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. He withholds no good thing from those who walk with integrity. Do you believe that about God? Do you trust that about God? that he will not withhold any good thing from you? Because that's the antithesis of the way most people live their lives. They think, well, I've got to go out and get what I want. Or you could just trust God to bring into your life the things you need, the things that are good. 
Because he's promised that he'll do that. Can you trust him? That's kind of what's going on in the garden thing too. And then he not just, not just provides pleasing food, but it says purpose. We talked about that last week. Brian preached a great message about work and purpose, so I'm not going to go there today. And then freedom, because in verse 16, he says to Adam, he says, you are free. And freedom is a beautiful thing. If you've ever been in bondage to something, it's no fun. To be free. He says, you're free, Adam. I've created you free. And that's an amazing thing. The Bible talks about freedom. You will know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth will set you free. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. He who has the son will be free indeed. So freedom is what God wants for us. That's the way he made us. But what is freedom? Is freedom the absence of restraint? Is it doing whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, with whoever you want? Is that freedom? That often creates bondage in people's life. If God is our creator, since God is our creator, he alone is the one that knows what freedom is. So we should listen to him to say, wow, he created me a free being. He created you a free being. He wants us to be free. Freedom is not the absence of restraint. Freedom is the presence of choice. And that's what I love. People will say, well, what is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Was it an evil tree? Why did God, I've heard people say, well, God created evil in the garden. No, no, God didn't create evil. God created a tree that produced the knowledge of good and evil. Up to this point, up until the point in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of that tree, they didn't know evil. They only knew good. And God said, the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And certainly they did, but they had a choice. And I want you to understand something. Choice is a very important thing because choice means you do have freedom to choose. It means that not everything about your life is programmed out. It doesn't mean that God predetermines everything about your life. There's some theological viewpoints that say that's true. But that's not what I see when I read my Bible because what I see is from the very beginning, God says you're free to choose and you're responsible for the way that you choose. And that theme runs throughout Scripture, that we have a choice and we're responsible. We're held responsible for the choice that we make. So... So what is it? What is it that God's after in our lives? Well, if you go back and think about that, the lawyer asked Jesus that question. What's the most important command? In other words, what's the most important thing God's after in our lives? And he answered that question in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's what God's after in every one of our lives. That's what he was after in Adam's life. I want you to love me supremely. And I'm not going to program you to do that. I'm not going to make you a machine that I just put a, a, a program in and you run on that. He could have made us that way. He could have made us to love him with no choice. But he said, no, that's not true love. True love requires that you have a choice, that I have a choice to choose to love him and obey him or to choose to reject him and not obey him. Only love, only love can, true love can come as a result of having a choice. And so God gave you and me a choice. God gave Adam a choice in that garden, all the wonderful things. He says, you're free to eat any of them, including the tree of life. But there's one thing that I want to warn you about eating. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because there's a consequence with that. That will not be good for you. That you will not like. That will hinder your freedom. And so what you see is God's after love. He loves us. God created all these wonderful things. And to this point, when you think about all these things, you have to stop and go, wow, God is a good God. And then the second thing I want to talk about this morning is this. The Lord God commanded. Ah, I knew we were going to get to that, right? 
And when you think of a command, do you always think it's mean or stern or harsh when you think of a command? Because a lot of people do. Because, again, they think, well, a command is going to hinder my freedom. Don't tell me what to do. Don't give me any rules. Don't give me any laws. I don't want any of that stuff. I want to do that for myself. I don't want anybody to command me what to do. And and so I want to challenge that thinking you have this morning because God does command. He issues a command, just one, to Adam. But it's a very, very important command. And so he'd produced life. He'd placed, he'd planned this garden. He'd placed man in this garden. He'd provided all these wonderful things. And, and then suddenly there's a command. And that command does not in any way diminish his love. In fact, it's an extension of it. So I want you to think about that this morning. There's no difference in his character here. It, it's not, it doesn't mean that God's angry or that he's harsh because he issues a command. In fact, the first thing I want you to see about his command is that it's righteous. God is righteous to command human beings because he is the right person to do it. There is no other being in the universe that has a right to command creation except the creator. So based on his position alone, his command to human beings is a righteous command. He's the right one to do it. We talk about the Supreme Court. And really, we should always say the Supreme Court of the United States because the Supreme Court of the United States is not the Supreme Court of the world. They're just the Supreme Court over the United States. God is supreme. In other words, of the universe, beyond the universe, of all creation. God's over all of it. There's no one over him. So he rightfully has the right as the creator of all that we know and do, and especially those of us who are human beings, to command us how to live. That's the right thing for him to do. It's a righteous command. God is supreme over all people at all times in all places because he created all people. So his command is righteous. I want you to see, secondly, that his command is reasonable. If God created us, since God created us, I keep saying if God created us, since God created us, he knows exactly what's best for us. He knows what life was intended to be like. He knows what will harm us, what will bring bad things into our life. And so the most reasonable thing in the world is for him to command us how to live. Some of you are parents, right? And you command your kids to do things. You will not go here. You will not hang out with those people. You will not be involved in this activity. Do you do those things because you don't like your kids? No. No, the most reasonable thing you can do as a parent, if you love your kids, is instruct them, guide them. And sometimes that comes across in the form of a command. You will not, thou shalt not, you will not do this, right? And your kids just trust you because you have so much more experience than them. And they just go, oh, well, mom, dad, thank you for telling me what to do. I'll do whatever you say every time you say it because you know so much more about everything than I do. You've been down this road before. Is that what happens at your house? Probably not because they think they know more than you and they're wrong. Just like when I think I know more than God, I'm wrong. God puts Adam in this garden. He says, you're free to do all this amazing stuff. Just don't eat of this one tree. Trust me, it's for your own good. Choose me. Choose to trust me. And Adam goes, "Mm, I don't know. I think you're holding out on me, God. I don't want to get ahead because I know Brian's going to preach on this, but it's hard because I want to talk about that. Because the reality is... The sin in the garden was basically distrust. Saying, I don't think so, God. That looks pretty good to eat. I mean, I know I can eat all this other stuff, but I really want some of that. And there was a distrust that happened. 
Same distrust that happens at your house when you don't trust your, when, when your kids don't trust you, that you didn't trust your parents, and it goes on and on and on. And so the reality is it's reasonable for God to command us because he knows us. He knows how life was created. He knows how it was intended to be lived. And he wants what's best for us. And then the last thing about his command is his command is responsible. In other words, he tells Adam, there's inherent danger in your choice. If you choose wrong here, Adam, there's a huge consequence. And the consequence is the day that you eat of that tree, you're going to die. Did Adam die physically? No. Did he die? Yeah. Because he was banished from the garden. He was cut off from that unbroken fellowship with God. There was a curse involved. But he was no longer allowed to live in paradise. A a wonderful place that God made for him. A place of perfection. He could no longer live there anymore. And there were all these other consequences that came about. And creation was affected by it. And his life and his offspring were affected by it. And we are affected by it. And so there was all this consequence that came about as a result of Adam's choice. And God knew that ahead of time. And he was warning Adam because he loves Adam. He's responsible. And he's saying, don't do this. And, And you know what? The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. You say you love somebody, but you don't care what they get into. You don't, you don't care to warn them when there's danger ahead in their life. You don't love them. When you love someone, you'll go to any lengths to try to stop them from messing up their life. Now, you can't control what they do, but if you see danger ahead in their life, especially like with your kids, you're going to do whatever it takes to say, stop this. This is going to result in some really bad things. That's the responsible thing to do. God is responsible in his ability to command us because he does love us and he does care about us. He wants, you know, what's best for us. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so, yes, Adam died that day. He died in his relationship with God. He became dead spiritually. Not physically. He ultimately died physically. But he died spiritually that day. And the Bible says everyone who sins dies. Everyone's cut off from God. And all of us will die physically. The certainty of death is a reality in our lives. And so I want to ask you a question, and I want to ask you to do something this morning at the end of the service here. Some of you have asked Christ to come into your lives. You've trusted Jesus as your Savior, and you don't ever think about or ever worry about or ever be scared of the idea of spending eternity separated from God in a terrible place called hell. You never think about that. You're not worried about that. That's you this morning. You never worry about going to hell. Just raise your hand. It's okay. (laughs) I hope there's more hands than that. You never worry about hell in your future. I'm asking you to raise your hand because I want you to celebrate that. You don't live with the fear of, wow, what's going to happen to me when my life ends? Am I going to go to this horrible place for eternity? You don't have to worry about that because you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You've been saved. That's something to celebrate, obviously. But I want you to remember that some people don't have that assurance. And for most of us who've lived a lot of our lives as Christians, we never think about that. We don't have the fear of that. And, and for us to be responsible in their lives, to share the gospel with them, because they don't have that same assurance. Now, I didn't mention this a second ago, but one of the other things that God provided in the garden in verse 9 was the tree of life. And it's kind of a mysterious tree. But the Bible says that if they would have eaten of the tree of life, they would have had eternal life. You see, God, from the very beginning, wanted you and me to be with him. He wanted Adam to be with him eternally, forever. It's a beautiful picture. He still wants the same thing for you today. 
The Bible says, yeah, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. He wants you to live with him forever. And he wants to restore that garden experience in a future garden called heaven, called paradise, where the things that were in the original garden you see in Revelation are in the last paradise. And so he wants that for every one of us, and it's a gift because we are dead spiritually outside of Jesus Christ, and we need to put our faith in Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life. And so, you know, I have no doubt if I had been Adam and I had been in the original garden, I would have done the same thing he did because I've done the same thing he did. I've distrusted God and thought I knew more than God and tried to do things on my own, and, and you probably have too. I know you have because all the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what do you do with that? How do you receive the gift of eternal life? Well, it is a gift. The Bible says all have sinned, so all of us are in that boat together. But the Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So there, we don't have to do a lot. <laughs> We can't save ourselves. We could never be good enough to save ourselves. We come to Christ and we ask him to come into our life and forgive us. We turn away from the sin in our life and we ask him to come in and save us. And he's faithful to do that, the Bible says. He will do that because he's a perfect savior. Romans goes on to talk about in chapter 10, verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this morning, I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that this morning. The greatest offer anybody's ever made another human being. I'm going to give you the chance to do that in this room or if you're watching online this morning. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, with nobody looking around but me right now, I'm going to give you a chance to put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you say, I do believe in Jesus, I believe he's who he said he is, but I've never really repented of my sin. I've never asked Jesus to come into my life, and I want to do that this morning. I want that free gift of eternal life. I want to be with the Lord now and all through eternity in the wonderful place that he's created called heaven for me ultimately. That's you this morning with nobody looking around at me. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and be bold about it because it's the best decision you'll ever make. Just raise your hand. Give me a chance to see you. You guys have your hands up. I'm going to lead you through a time of doing exactly what the Scripture says, and that is calling on the name of the Lord. It's a prayer. It's a way for you to communicate with him what you want him to do in your life. And the Bible says he'll answer that prayer, he'll hear that prayer, and he'll answer that prayer. And so with nobody looking around, I'm going to ask you just to pray directly to him. And you can use these words of mine or you can use your own words. He knows your heart. That's what matters. You can just say, dear God in heaven, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry. I don't want it. I reject sin. I don't want any part of it. I want Jesus to come into my life. I want to have a relationship with you. I believe in Jesus putting my trust in him this morning to be my savior. Help me live in a way that honors you. I want to know you. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. I pray in Jesus' name today. Amen.